welcome to New Persuasive Words, a podcast of hope-seeking understanding. You're invited to listen in to an ongoing conversation about theology, culture, and politics between your co-hosts, Scott Jones and Bill Bohr. Regardless of topic, Bill and Scott offer intelligent insights and critiques, sometimes funny, occasionally contentious, but always remaining friends. Now, here are Scott and Bill. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 274, if you can believe it. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. If you can believe that. Yeah, well, I can believe that. How come your lines are bigger than my lines? I mean, not that size matters. Uh, it's probably <laughs> a combination. We're talking about the audio. It's audio. probably a combination of... You talk loud. Is it? It's, yeah, it's t- louder. And my voice also probably, it, it, it tends to, with the volume also comes a lot of highs and lows. Oh, uh, in other words, you're saying that I'm a, I'm a more stable voice than you I are? have timba. I did this character. There's this great timba. place. <laughs> Bowmansville Tavern, I think it's called. In, um, it's in New Hope. And, New Hope. Uh, New Hope, a fun place. A little too crowded sometimes in the summer. It is. Yeah, yeah. But it's fun. But it's outside New Hope, and they do like live piano karaoke. And I sang, I forget, what did I say? I, I sang Harry Connick Jr. or something. I forget. And this old guy said, You have nice timba, like Perry Como. Yeah, I, I still, I, I must admit, I, I've known you a long time, and your relationship with karaoke is still something that just totally fascinates me. I love it. Yeah, yeah. I love karaoke. I think it's awesome. I, where, is it on film? We actually did a duet one. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's on film. Yeah, somewhere. somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Probably, you know, best lost. Well, we're in the, we're coming into the end of summer, and we were thinking about a couple different ideas. You did a great interview on Give and Take about a wonderful book. that. Yeah, it should come out today. It's by Michael Patrick Lynch, and it's called Know-It-All Society, Truth and Arrogance in Political Culture. It's really also a great entryway into philosophy. Like he's a philosopher at UConn, I think, University of Connecticut, and it it you know he starts off talking about like Socrates and the question of you know the Republic that you know what we, we how we ought to live should be connected to our beliefs, and then he goes into Montaigne and skepticism and and, and you know the post Reformation kind of uh, France and the thirty you know the wars subsequent to that period and stuff, and he just goes on to. Talk about social media and how we form convictions and identity politics. It's great. It's a fantastic book. He was on Morning Joe, although I said, you know, I was wishing they were going to ask you better questions. But but the um, medium is only, you know, you get like five minutes. So, All right. Well, good. So we'll talk. And also, I thought, you know, both of us are looking at vacation. You took a mini one. Well, it was a wedding last weekend, but we both are coming up on vacation. So I thought it might also be interesting. Things we're taking on vacation with us. This Do being- you opine much about weddings you attend? Because I, I had an experience where I like... Probably. I, I wanted to. Do I do what? what? Do you opine if you're an attendee and the celebrant is 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 eccentric or idiosyncratic? Or... Yeah. Yeah, I, I try I try not to evaluate. I really do. I try to just for first of all, I don't go to very many weddings and I don't I'm not either You're not a civilian, right? Yeah, not very often. I'm either performing the wedding or someone I'm related to is getting married. <laughs> so I mean when it comes down to that, I yeah, so I have a yeah. I'm performing um, a wedding at the Waterworks in Philadelphia. It should be fun, and this will be. I've done every wedding in this family, so these are these are more like uh, former members of my church, but more like uh, you're like fam- Sears, where people would just only buy appliances. Uh, yeah, so but, so but it's uh, we don't do anything. No, <clears throat> no it's great family. I've known this matrimonial. Yeah, I've known this girl since she was like four, so it'll be fun. That'll be a fun one to do. Yeah, but I, I do. You know, you and I actually. 
What, what, I feel like I was at your wedding because you were giving me commentary throughout the whole event. I did. <laughs> I, I did call you twice. <laughs> Are you sure just twice? I called you twice. All right. All right. Okay. But you did. You were giving me a little commentary and your father-in-law saved, saved the wedding. I, I thought my father-in-law gave this speech. I think my mother-in-law is going to put it on her WordPress. So I will link to it. it. It was so meaningful about the meaning of marriage and the nature of forgiveness and forgiveness and the equality of an enduring marriage. That was, I thought, and so inc- incredibly profound. It was just so great. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I'm getting ready to go to Greenland to do some advanced scouting for land. Uh, for my vacation. So Trump said he was going to buy Greenland. That's right? what he did. Greenland, right? Yeah. Uh, that was news to Denmark. They didn't know that it was for sale. So Why did he want to buy it? I don't know. I think it was a distraction thing, to be totally honest with you. But I'm getting ready to go on vacation. <laughs> you, think it was, you know where Greenland is really valuable? In risk. Because yeah. you, it's a bridge to North America. Or it's part of North America. But it's like it's you have, if between. you control North America, you have to, you have to protect yourself. All those... Troops yeah. have to load the, on the, the Greenland border. Greenland and also Alaska. You Alaska. Got, you got, and you need, Mexico. You yeah. need guys in parka yeah. <laughs> and people on the border. That's right. People on the border. So, yeah, maybe that's he just was a risk player. That's where Trump got it. Just always got used to building the wall down there on risk if you yeah. have, have North America. I don't think Trump has the attention span for risk. <laughs> no, no, it does take, take a little bit of time. Well, all right. First of all, what am I taking on, on vacation with me? Well, this is – God bless uh, – Colleen is in heaven. But one of the things Colleen – told me to do last year before she died was to read every Pulitzer Prize winning book and every Booker Prize. That's what she always did. So I'm taking a vacation. All that, all the light we cannot see. I've heard great things about this. Well, how do I get that right? Well, anyway, all the light we cannot see, a winner of the Pulitzer Prize. So that's one thing. I've been working on my poetry. So I'm taking Jared Manley Hopkins along. I've been reading a little bit of that. You have to take him in very small doses. Uh, I just bought, I heard her interviewed, uh, Sister Helen Prejean, River of Fire. I was sent that book. It, it, it's a, it's uh, her interview was amazing on Fresh Air. I should I should you should get her. I should get her on. They were they was sent to me and I, they were she uh, she was uh, the her, her book was Dead Man Walking. She was portrayed by Susan Sarandon in the movie. Just this is a spiritual autobiography, and she became uh, a Jesuit nun, Sister Saint Joseph, before Vatican II. And she talks about the change and. Just in her, uh, I don't know, I haven't read the book yet. I just bought it today after hearing the interview. But she does a discussion about uh, about approaching one's sexuality, just in a vignette that was just one of the best things I've heard in a long time. That should be worth the price of the mission itself. But it talks about her just journey um, from wanting to be a mystic to becoming an, uh, you know, to becoming an activist. And uh, she's 80 years old. Uh, and so her own dealing with her own mortality as she has uh, most famous for uh, being uh, walking with people who are on death row. And so she has some interesting things to say. She also wrote a letter to St. Francis, or not St. Francis, Pope Francis, um, that she delivered by hand, and that letter is included in the book as well. So I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm reading The Roots of Mysticism uh, by Oliver Clement. I did. I got a new fire pad. Why wouldn't you get an iPad? I just I had this. I was already used to this. And I don't. I don't want to necessarily have uh, let Apple own everything. Uh, yeah, it's so many more. Like I you can do so much more with an iPad. But I also. But I got. Um, I got a great deal on it. It was on uh, Amazon Prime Day. How much was it? Uh, I think I paid fifty. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good deal. Yeah. 
And I had a coupon as well. And then the other thing I'm reading is a set of short stories. And you got it before the tariffs. Jack I got it before the, the tariffs, right? So before tariffs. I like how we said there were going to be no consumer effects. There have been. There won't be. But we're concerned for Christmas. So we're not going to. Oh, I, I thought we didn't have to worry about that stuff. Yeah. And the other book I, uh, that is, this is probably, someone says, this is the most the best writer in the world that no one knows about. But people do know. He did win the Booker Prize. Uh, Steam System. It's short stories of Jared, what is it, how do you pronounce his name? Gerald Morseman, Horseman? Yeah, Merman, Gerald Merman. He's an Australian writer. He lives in the middle of nowhere. Um, and you can, if you go, if you find him in the middle of nowhere in the outback, he might be tending the bar. But uh, wonderful, interesting interview about him. But uh, yeah, a lot of people think he, he, they say he's one of the greatest writers in the world right now. Interesting guy. So that's what I'm taking with me, uh, book-wise. Uh, I'm also going to take my mandolin along with me. I have not been playing my mandolin for a while. Yeah, interesting instrument. uh, I've got. uh, I just got a renewed interest in bluegrass music, which has typically soul music. Balsam Ridge. If you're looking for a new bluegrass band, I'll be taking their entire collection with me on my Apple Music. So I'm kind of looking forward to reading, uh, relaxing, enjoying nature, and maybe where are you going? uh, Block Island, up off the coast of Rhode Island. It's actually where. David Berrigan was arrested. <laughs> he was hiding out with William Stringfellow. Berrigan when you, uh, of the great, you know, the brother, Berrigan brothers who were anti-Vietnam. Are you going to go on the run? The the run? Yeah, I mean, are you going to hide out? Oh, I could. I could. I'm going to retreat. I'm going to try to find uh, Stringfellow's buried on the island, so I'm going to try to find William Stringfellow's grave. Um, a guy who was really influential to me, with me in the early, I cut my teeth Is a little bit. Is he buried anonymously? Who? Like, no, no, I don't think so. He I, mean, does, I wouldn't think with Google it. You're still trying to find it like it's going to be an expedition. I mean, I wouldn't think it's... It's a small island, but I mean, and I'll look, go to a cemetery and look for I mean, it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not... Yeah, it's not looking for the you know, the tomb of, uh, you know, uh, St. Alfred or anything like that. <laughs> no, yeah, be, I'm like, wow, should, it's, it's not... I mean, it's not going to be like a... Right, it, it probably it. will take me 10 minutes, but it sounds the idea. Jim I'm gonna... Calvin was buried in an unmarked grave because he didn't want people to venerate his grave. Now, is that humble or arrogant that you think it'd be an issue? It's wholly arrogant. It's wholly, I mean, you know, I mean, it is, it, it's an interesting question. Uh, I, I once heard Jerome, Jerome described that wholly arrogance. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Yeah. I think that probably applies to it. Uh, oh, Calvin, you have to put in humble, wholly arrogance because it's both. It's both for Calvin. I, don't you think? Uh, yeah. I think in relationship with God, he's very humble. Yeah. Yeah. With the human race, maybe not so much. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my that's my backpack I'm taking, plus, you know, good wine and probably my pipe as well. It's, I tend to smoke when my pipe. Leaving? I'm leaving a week from yesterday. So. so When am I leaving? Labor Day. When really is Labor Day. Day. Yeah, I've got a lot. Is that of, the week after? Uh, yeah. Or I'm no. actually coming back as you're leaving. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of stuff to do before then in the middle of writing some grants and things. But anyway, that's that's I'm kind of looking forward to getting away, and and that's what I'm taking with me. So there are my book recommendations for the end of the summer. I have no idea yet what I'm taking with Well, you read all the time. I'm, you know, I'm also – did you – it's it's an old book, Ann Diller's uh, Pilgrim Tinker Mountain or Tinker Creek. No. Uh, it's absolutely – she won a Pulitzer for it back in the 70s. It is – it is some of the most beautiful writing I've ever read. It's amazing. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm working through that too. I read that almost devotionally, just small segments of it, because the, the language is just so rich. And in her own, 
her own kind of spiritual musings about walking in nature and having a relationship with the land. That's actually, Hopkins did the same thing. Part of his Jesuit discipline, he would take a walk and be engaged with nature as, as a form of meditation. And, and, of course, it shows up in his poetry and, and his theology as well. So it's really kind of this idea. And, you know, and Christine Sign, it's interesting. A lot of these things are converging for me because Christine Sign says that's what her and Tom do every day. They take that walk. Right, they take that walk. I, yeah. I like that. She, yeah, that's uh... – yeah, I'm a, I might do some walk yeah. on the beach. I like yeah. that, that kind of nature beach walk. So, so again, like I said, you read, uh, you read all, you read that many books every day. I think so. Um, on a streak, sometimes a book a day. I mean, it's like grad school. Sometimes that's one of the best things I learned in graduate school: how to read a book, like read how to book read quickly, yeah, quickly. I think it's a great. Uh, well, and thing I think to learn. I think with give and take, it's kind of it's part of your vocation as well. I mean, it's part of it's part of your work. It's part of. What you're supposed to be doing here in the world. Yeah, it's, it's fun. It's By the fun. way, we are kicking around adding a new podcast to the Scott Jones Network. SJN, that'd be like TBN. Oh, yeah, the test. What if we got gold chairs? That'd be very cool. We could just put gold chairs behind us. That'd be easy to do. Yeah. So my good friend Don Baker and I are kicking around the idea of doing a, I don't know, a uh, occasional podcast on ministry. So you could analyze wedding ser- services. That that might we might wait till season two to do that. <laughs> I could I could do that. Although you know it's something it is wedding wedding sermons and funeral sermons, maybe two of the the opportunities for us to do the most important ministry we do in ministry. Yeah. And um, I did you I don't remember learning that in seminary, and I cut a lot of those preaching classes. So I will be honest about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean I I took one preaching class and I didn't take it any other. Although I enjoyed it, I, the woman that taught it, Teresa Strickland, was fantastic. But I just didn't like that. I mean, I had Tom Long. I liked listening to him. Yeah, talk. It's hard. I mean, like, yeah, it's very interesting because, like, Tim Keller has this demon module he did. That I got a PDF of, and like he would do this preaching like January demon course, and it has like almost nothing about technique in the whole module. Like his just doesn't talk about technique really at all. Yeah. He talks about like missional context. Like he talks about biblical theology. He talks about how you relate indicatives and imperatives. He talks about like, yeah, how to, you know, the gospel and all the body. He talks also, but he's, there's no like three points do that. He's Uh, sense, which which I like, because I think that technique stuff is often yeah, the most subjective. Problem. It's the stuff that can change the quickest. Yes, that in depending on contact, like it's the stuff that I think is the least transferable. Well, there was a there was a time in Princeton where they certainly had a template that you were supposed to fulfill. Yes, there was. Yeah, there and is. It, it still there is. is still is. Well, you know, funny thing, they had the speech labs when I was at Princeton, and uh, you know, I'd given a hundred. Oh no, more than a hundred. I'd given hundreds of kids talk. Which was different than sermon, but I think harder. At any rate, before I got to Princeton, so I was used to public speaking, and so we had this one credit speaking module. You're supposed to do, you know, dramatic readings, and they had at that time they still had guys that were you know old guys that done radio in New York coming oh, yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, right. Well, um, so I would, I, I was a busy. Per- I mean, I was working. I had two kids, so I was, uh, you know, I was doing a couple jobs. It was pretty intense going to school and at Princeton trying to keep my family together. And so how I prepared for the class, I'd walk through the library on the way to the speech class and pick something up and then just read it without ever looking at it. Okay. And I did that for, I don't know, the first month or so of the class. Then I had to sit down by the professor after having done one of my presentations. And I saw he put a grade on there. And I go, we get, we get graded for this? 
And he goes, yes. And I actually cared about my GPA <laughs> at Princeton. So, so I started pre- preparing. At the end of class, I said, you know, I don't know what you did halfway through, but you were one of the most improved students. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it counted. I didn't know it counted. That's something you should uh, – yeah, is this going to be on the test? I didn't know that. But uh, at any rate, well, you know, I did. I teach one of the craziest things is I, I teach homiletics to Buddhists. every other year to Buddhist priests and training. And I did do a unit on, um, and again, the um, they do a part of the class with a, they do with a Buddhist priest, obviously the liturgical and service part of it. But I do the homiletics part, and and I did have them both. Uh, I had my students prepare. Uh, both a funeral and a and a and a uh, wedding meditation, uh, which doesn't they don't that doesn't happen real often that they get to do that. But increasingly, this is a Buddhist uh, group that is really working on their North American context. So there's kind of an expectation in North America for there to be these kind of things. So it was pretty pretty fascinating. George Takei is a Buddhist. He was on Howard Stern, and he was talking about they, – they were asking if he would go to Shatner's funeral. He's a guy I do go to many people's funeral. They, he said uh, that uh, – and he asked if Shatner went to Nimoy's funeral. He said, I, I assume so because, you know, they both have the – they're both Jewish, so maybe there's that uh, that, that connection there. And we're like, what do you mean? How how, how, do you, how religious do you, know, do you think they are? And Howard goes, yeah, you know, Robin goes to every black funeral in New York because he's got that connection. <laughs> <laughs> well, Leonard Nimoy was observant. He was very you – know, Yeah, he was fact, very observant. In yeah. fact – he, the, the, the Spock, the live long and prosper with the fingers, but that is called the Cohen blessing. Yeah. He made it up. They were like, he's like, we need a salutation for this alien ambassador. A handshake won't do it. So he's like, what about this? The Cohen blessing. So yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. I know it now. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Zoll, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butrin, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, Stephen Rowe, and Jody Stevenson. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Yeah, so uh, I, I'm not going to... I was tempted to talk about Israel today, but I'm not going to. Israel! Yeah, at any rate. So, You're not boycotting. Anything. I'm not happy, but I'm not boycotting anything. Um, so, identity politics. 
By the way, Kenneth Tanner is watching. I hung out with him in Michigan. Yeah, it's such a nice time hanging out. He sends his regards. Yeah, and, I would. Uh, I would like to get to know. He was Kevin. great. He was. He was. Uh, it was so fun. It was just like you know. It was like not missing a beat. You know, it was the first time we never hung out in person. It was. Uh, went to a nice place called the Pumpkin Cafe. It was, and uh, it was great. So Ken in real life is as engaging and deep as he is. So there's more to him than meets the eye. Unlike me, where there's less. That's. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's the case. Anyway. So I, I said one thing I wanted to talk about today. I'm about you. I'm not. This I'm is one not. of the best things in this book. Know it all. He has this chapter on identity politics. Mm-hmm. He talks about how there's a difference between like a kind of identity politics that's about just about the politics of recognition in a pluralistic democracy that people are different. You know, they're different groups, and some groups are are privileged, and some aren't, and there sometimes works out to be oppressive relations and things like that, and he talked about also the epistemics of position, like knowing from a from from being situated somewhere. Like even Locke said, you know, once you've tasted a pineapple for the first time, you have a advantage position over someone that hasn't. You know, something right, that. Right. Uh, and he talks about how none of the feminist critical theorists that developed these ideas were utter subjectivists and thought that there's no truth except my truth and from my position, but that. You know, there were critics on the right and the left that that worried that this that this could become an excess, and how when it when it does, uh, that that's what we we're, what we're thinking of as identity politics, not recognition, representation, and understanding position and and how you see things from a different point of view from your vantage point. But but that I mean, I thought that was an excellent sort of, and he just talked about how liberals can often wrap up with their identity we're the party of knowledge and 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 some of the problems but but really the whole book is about politics and identity and how like i mean that there's a small section about identity politics but the broader thing he talks about things like how belief goes to conviction and once it's a conviction he's great phrase it it serves to expand the self and how we we're people that are shaped by stories and so these convictions they're often connected to our tribe and they and so these thing the, the these convictions form part of ourself, which makes them hard to be critical about. And and right, right, because you you feel like you're losing part of yourself if right. you're self critical about it. And he just does some great stuff about why we are and how the internet reinforces this. And and it's just such a, a such a rich discussion. And it, it it you know it's a great book because at the end of it, if you read it and think, yeah. Those people, you probably didn't get it because you're you're those. We're people. all those people, right? It's right. just so interesting how when ideas do identity work, it it probably makes a distorted view of ourselves. It also makes it really hard to see and know the truth. Uh, you know, we're talking about how at the end of the conversation, now like a sort of false tribal certain certainty thinks you can grasp the truth. You know, we're when you're really involved in inquiry, there's the sense that the truth grasps you, you know, yeah, it's something outside yeah, of yourself. Right. It's just such a rich discussion about how our, our our convictions shape ourselves and how we have. And it's interesting because he talked about two basic things like confidence and, and, and not wanting to be ignorant, which are good things. You know, we tell kids, be confident. You don't want to be ignorant. But. The, the desire to look confident on the group level and the desire to not look like you're ignorant often, you know, create deleterious things right, at, exactly. at, a, at a more developed level. Just so many great observations that made me think like, gosh, that on an everyday level, we are, we, it's sort of like you get the politics you deserve. So much of, of what we are living in and we're frustrated with is, is stuff that we all 
make a significant contribution tip. Yeah. Last, well, it was the last week or two weeks ago, I uh, had to facilitate a discussion um, about a controversy that's going on within um, my regional uh, body, uh, religious body, my uh, denomination. And, you know, one of the... Was it about BDS? No, it was not about BDS. Uh, but one of the issues is how big, how big can the tent be? You know, which is part of that right now, because can you disagree on a particular issue uh, without feeling like you're not being true to your to yourself? Are we having a DJ or a big band? Because that changes it, right? Yeah, it does DJ change. DJ needs a smaller well, buffet, or so we're bringing the plates out again. Need a bigger tent. Well, yeah, and, you know, I mean, could we? Is there? I mean, there might be, but uh, you know, do you think there are any relationships in the U.S. Senate right now that were like Orrin Hatch and Ted Kennedy? Probably not. I would yeah that the idea that these two people, the most conservative at that point, considered the most conservative senator in in the Senate, and the you know the leader, if you would, of the liberal wing of the of the Democratic Party, were best friends. Do you think Ted Cruz sits alone at lunch a lot? I think he does. <laughs> Although I have to say, Ted Cruz made some of the most sense when you know he criticized both Netanyahu. And Trump with this whole thing about uh, banning these two these congressmen from coming to Israel. Uh, but you enlightened me today because I was like, well, but wait, if they're if they want to boycott Israel, why did they even want to go? To, I think, but then you said they were just going to the West Bank. Well, and also BDS is it's a it's a there there are degrees of it. Again, I don't agree. When with, you say degrees is like a Mason or like religious, how BDS are you? Well, well all right, there's something just goes to personal hygiene. Uh, no, I, I I think the heart of B uh, there is. A lot anyway, of for people to know, BDS is this idea that boycott the, you boycott divestment Israel sanctions sanctions. You know, it it you know you you it's you're observing sanctions against Israel because you think it's a form of apartheid. Well, that well, yeah. Regard to the they, well, they make the yes, yeah, they make it. They have been saying rhetorically that it's it's you know, and unfortunately, the longer the occupation goes on, the more it starts looking that way. That's un, that's the unfortunate thing because part of the problem with the BDS is they they pick out Israel. And ignore. I mean, there, there's no one talking about boycotting China for what they're doing to Muslims. Uh, there's no one talking about uh, boycotting Russia for what they do to everybody, or Turkey for what they're doing to intellectual dissonance and things like that. So, you the, know, what is part of this? I forget what author somebody's quoting. There is Jenna Goldberg, I think, was talking about the psychologist that talks about how our tribal identities form, and then we we people have these abstract identity markers, and then we become focused on the contrarian nature. You know, I, a part of my identity is not having sharing your abstract I, I ideas yeah. that form your identity. So, like, you know, there's no because nobody's in American politics is is pro or sympathetic to what China's doing to Islam. Well, you can't be like, well, the Republicans. Yeah, we're against it because damn Republicans. Like, if you don't, you know, yeah. it's better if it's politicized. Like, if if it's politicized, people care. So because they're because it's a kind of kind of it's become a right left issue where you side on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, then it, it, it heightens emotions. Whereas, right. like, unless you can think somebody's a jerk uh, related to the suffering, you don't care about the suffering. Well, and, and just, again, I don't want to get... But I, I know more about this subject than I want to. I actually authored a national... An overture that against BDS that was passed by a national denomination. So I've spent over 13 years dealing with this issue. Um, so, again, I... Uh, and, and what's happening in the Labor Party... Uh, in Great Britain, I think is anti-Semitic. I mean, there you can you can be called you can you you know for instance, I support two-state solution. 
I support an end to the occupation. I support economic support for the Palestinian people. Uh, and I also support um, Israel. So it's, it doesn't have to be either or. Unfortunately, both the rhetoric, the political rhetoric, and also the reality on the grounds. I mean, it's a very complicated thing. The instability that, in part, the United States caused uh, uh, and the repercussions of all of that have have made a volatile region even more volatile and unstable. So it's a complicated thing. But my whole point was that these are two con- these are two U.S. Congress women, and they represent the United States of America. And to politicize this, and for a president to uh, get a foreign leader to act in a partisan way. I mean, that's the bigger issue. I mean, you know, again, and your friend wrote an article why, yes, governments do, um, you know, not allow certain people to come into the country. I took great issue with one of his examples. <laughs> England, England would not let Donald Trump in. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, yeah, but anyway, what I'm saying is, so I understand nations do this, but there's, this isn't just about the fact that these women support BDS. These are U.S. congressmen or congresswomen. And uh, that's very problematic. And the fact that they're both the only Muslim women uh, representatives in Congress, and you tie that with them being singled out uh, and they're women of color, there's a whole bunch of problems with this. And, uh, you know, maybe hopefully Netanyahu will not be prime minister after next month's elections. But nonetheless— Netanyahu, though, is the ultimate political survivor. He is a survivor. He's a survivor. He, he is. He is a survivor. I will. I will give him that. But he, part of his survival has been just the other disarray of uh, the Labor Party, the left wing, and 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 left of center in, in Israeli politics, which is complicated. Part of it's corruption. Part of it is just the uh, what the Second Intifada did to the psyche of of uh, Israel, and it, you know took the. Life out of the peace movement. Lots, lots of different reasons. What if we had a two-state solution in Pennsylvania? Like, just had Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and the rest. Of the <laughs> we kind of do have a two-state. <laughs> we do have two states. It's <laughs> not Yeah, I've got a passport. So I was in the other state, like going to Michigan. Well, right? yeah, I, I, I have a passport to yeah, both exactly. parts. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, you visit, you visit I, the other I, state I, all the time. I can speak Philadelphia. I speak Pittsburgh. I'm a Pittsburgh Steeler fan, and I grew up in the Alabama part of uh, Pennsylvania. So I'm uh, maybe I should run for you know something. You should run for governor. Yeah, what an awful job. <laughs> I think that would Pennsylvania, be, yeah. Like, be. But governor, any, I think it's just, that's a hard, the governor of anything is difficult. Yeah, yeah. But then people could go, hello, governor. <laughs> that would be the reason I'd do it. All right. Well, all right, let's talk, What what is a solution to identity politics? You know, one of the things I threw at you coming over here, maybe someone like Joe Biden, um, who's not my number one candidate right now, but, it, but someone maybe like Joe Biden, who represents an era and whose temperament is one that does not uh, like the identity politics? Could it? Could a president? Could a president Joe Biden help this issue? Yeah, I don't know. I think we're like in more of a meta sort of cultural shift moment kind of need. Like, I think people. I think that the stuff that I mean, you might temper it a little bit, right? And and maybe a president Mitt Romney would do the same thing. Well, yeah, President Mitt Romney would do. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, saying, I'm just trying to say, I mean, I'm just trying to say who, 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 what politicians kind of represent the best of what you, the way it used to be the pre, um, those pre politics, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that like, you know, it's interesting temperamentally, someone like Obama, like is what this Lynch book's time, but he's very self-reflective, very right. self-critical. And I think 
some of the toxic nature of our politics is just that like we it's so tribal and that tribalism reinforces like like human beings already are have a tough time with critical reflection just because it's, psychologically it's it's hard you know like right we 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 have to meet because you have a, a advanced and developed brain so much of the work has to be done on intuition and snap judgments so critical reflection is often very hard then you, when you reinforce it with the tribalism then you get social media where the algorithms are predicting the stuff you want so right. that you can then emote right. back to everybody and and all this stuff is like yeah i mean you, you might i mean well i think that's part of why george w is being reappraised because he is a very humble, self-reflective person, and post-presidency also. I mean, c- the comparative to Donald Trump helps him as well. Yeah, but Any, I mean, yeah, Idi Amin. Lots of people could be like the comparison with Trump would help me. War- <laughs> like, you know, come on, I don't go yeah, that. Warren G. Hardy just moved a step up in exactly, purgatory. Yeah, exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, yeah, I think it is. It's an and I, you know, you and I. I mean, in many ways, this was a this was more alive in. Church politics before it was a surface. It surfaced, I think, on yeah. the national politics. I mean, to me, my entire, my entire career, my and my particularly in theological education. I mean, this was the you know in, in the eighties um, when I was going to seminary. I mean, it was this was this was this was the drumbeat at seminaries and graduate schools. Yeah, it's right now. It's the democratic base, you know, that is. Yeah, like a base is the base drives every election, right? right. I mean, primary. That's just right. the nature of the beast. That's like nothing new there. But the, I think the hard thing is that you have people who, the people that need to be won over, or or the the, the election would have gone really differently. Save you know eighty thousand votes in four states, right? You know, and uh, you know because of the electoral college, right? You you know you could say you like or you don't. It's the reality right now. It's going to come down to a handful of states and. The the dynamics of the race right now might be such that the the primary base is pulling the democratic discussion in a way that feels most alien and disconnected to the exactly the people that Trump narrowly got to vote. You know, one, one they pushed him over the narrow margin of victory in the electoral college. So I mean, you just that could be uh, that could you know this could be the way Trump gets. Re-elected. Well, it also is the way, in a way, that democracy gets diminished. Uh, I sent you an article uh, that you had read that we should talk about. Yeah, I read that article a couple years ago. That well, was out last year. Yeah, or you t- yeah, you're, he's from NYU or something. I remember uh, reading that. Yeah, is that where he teaches now? But he's he's one of the leading uh, Holocaust experts. Yeah, that's a great article. World. Yeah, um, we, we'll we'll put a link to it on the show notes. But he basically. He, you know, there's two schools of thought about, well, there's more than two, but in Holocaust studies now, there's a sense that there was something, you know, inherently German Christian about the Holocaust, okay? There's something in, the, in that national identity. Um, and this scholar, I can't think of his name. I can't, I'm sorry, I wasn't planning on talking about this. But he says now that there's a sense where that um, he gives an example that when they first started the death squads, uh, they went and just pulled guys off the streets of Hamburg, which was um, mostly labor. Uh, was not it, Hamburg was the least one of the least supportive uh, cities in um, for Hitler. Um, the poor and working class did not support Hitler. Hitler got you know, his. He really, he was a the German capitalist is, is, is who really paid for Hitler in a lot of ways, and. Um, 
but they, his whole point is he took he took these guys they took these guys off the street to be part of the death squads I think in Lithuania, and the commandant says, "Listen, this is about what you're going to do, <laughs> and if any of you don't think you can do this, uh, you can you you can you can opt out." And okay, so this was not an ideological group at all. These are just average working class people who didn't particularly care for Hitler, and only twenty uh, percent opted out. I can't think of a thing where I'd opt into. Hey, if you can't uh, operate the uh, exit thing, don't have the seat with the extra legroom. Okay, I'm out. <laughs> I, I can't think of what group I wouldn't opt out. Well, of. right, but particularly you're going to be you're going to be killing unarmed uh, women and children. Oh, I'm out of that too. Yeah, well, that's but eighty percent people were not. So, I mean, I think the thing about it is that uh, the erosion of democracy is not something that is oh it'll never happen to us or it only happens to those type of people. And this kind of identity politics, uh, versions of it have shown has shown up in history before. Um, this kind of uh, schismatic and uh, yeah, and also uh, there's a kind of identity politics that you know you, you have a, a, an insecurity that right that among a certain part of the electorate, right? And now where that insecurity goes, or 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 how like or is it? Do the facts merit it? it th- there's that feeling of insecurity, regardless, and a certain kind of identity politics creates a white identity politics right, <laughs> like right. That's, i mean trump like kind of ran it's funny because you know you have you have the republicans who for years are decrying victimization and identity politics now who's the biggest victim <laughs> trump's the biggest they're blaming me for hong kong no one's blaming you for hong kong. but like encouraging yeah. victimization and right and and encouraging this kind of white identity politics you know, that's just, it's not good for democracy. Well, you know, and it's interesting. That was what people accused you of. That's what they accused the, the snowflake, you know, the liberal snowflake. But but this uh, this victimization has been embraced by the full spectrum. Oh, yeah. 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 And, uh, and the other question, who's profit? You know, one of the things, I mean, I don't mean to, uh, I don't believe in conspiracy theories ever at all. But one of the things, who's making money off the current situation? Who is profiting off of this um, this disorder? I think that's always... Follow the money and follow who's better. That's the guy, Arthur Brooks, who just wrote that book. I think he's the American Enterprise Institute president or whatever, but about contempt. And he's like, the, the, every time you're outraged and contemptuous, ask yourself, who's making money off it? Yeah, it's probably no, not you. Not me. No. All right. Well, uh, I wish we were, though. But Well, you know, I guess maybe the advertise will go up after this exactly. uh, podcast. Be safe. I hope you all have a good remainder of the summer. We probably won't be around for a couple of weeks, but uh, be well and uh, God bless. Thank you. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us for today's episode of New Persuasive Words. Hope you enjoyed Scott and Bill's conversation, and will join us back here next time. Until then, thanks for listening, and God bless.